name is Michael Weisbach. Um, I am a professor at Ohio State. I've taught at lots of universities around the country, but I've been here for 13 years, and I and I and I, and I really really like it. And one of the um, the things I teach that sort of got me integrated with this group is I, I focus my research and my teaching on on private equity and. Um, and so I, I was fortunate enough to come to a lunch at the Columbus uh, Country Club a few months ago and uh, met Mark, and he asked me to come back. And so uh, I got to join you guys at dinner last night and, um, and everything. So that uh, the course I teach is actually on private equity, and our goal is to sort of integrate um, integrate you know, the idea of private capital markets into our curriculum as, as a business school, but also to educate the students as to how to integrate. I was so happy when I was at the cocktail party last night, and I, I actually met the Amy that was discussed here earlier because she was my student at Ohio State. So we, we did something right, and now she's working for, for, for Jobs Ohio, and uh, – and so, such a bubbly personality. She's going to bring all this, uh, these, these people from uh, Asia to set up businesses in, um, in, in Columbus. Um, one, one of the themes I've had in a, some recent work of mine is that just I don't think the world has quite figured out um, how important private capital markets are. So that one way to look at it is like the 20th century was a century in which the major economic development, one of them, was to develop of public capital markets. And the 21st century, I predict, will be uh, the century of private capital markets. Now, right now, there are uh, about a trillion dollars raised worldwide every single year for all different sectors of the private capital market. Um, it, it, I didn't, of course, I didn't bring any numbers with me, but uh, but the um, you know the biggest sector is a buyout, but real estate and and, and the venture capital is. Um, is certainly one of them. And um, one of the amazing things that I always, I always think is that if we think about the most important com companies in our economy right now, I mean, they were basically all started in our lifetimes and really in the re last 20 or 30 years, um, you know, your Amazons and your Facebook and Google, and they're the, they're the, they're the companies everyone wants to work for. And, um, and, and they're, they're all brand new, right? If we think about, you know, the rest of the world, the, you know, Japan, they all want to work for Mitsubishi, you know, the, all these old companies where we, we have in this country, we have all these new companies and they're, they're, they're really driving the economic growth. And they're also driving regional growth so that if we, you know, one of the themes of the previous two speakers was sort of what's going on in Columbus, Ohio, and why is it doing so well? And I, I can vouch personally that it's, uh, you know, it's been growing. I've been here 13 years, and it's growing like mad. I actually live uh, – I was probably the only one here who walked from his house to, uh, to this meeting. I, I live a 10-minute walk up the road in, on High Street. Um, and, um, and so that you – know, and you, you see uh, there's new restaurants and new businesses, and, uh, and, all, and you know, they were all mentioned earlier, um, Root and Olive and uh, all the companies funded by, by, by Rev1. Um, and so one of the things that I think is key to developing a local economy is, is actually having private capital money uh, in, in that economy. And so that um, the two firms actually that were mentioned by Matt, um, Drive and Rev1, they actually feature prominently both in my course and all, because Mark Kwame comes every year and Parker McDonald comes every year and tells our students about it, but also in the development of of Columbus, and one of the if you, it's just if you look around the country and you look at which cities have done so well over the years. I mean, you got Austin, Texas, and you got Seattle, and you got the Research Triangle in North Carolina. I mean, forget about Silicon Valley; that's just insane. But it's just the, it's the companies where it's, it's the cities where all of the venture money is, and where all of the new um, the new develop uh, the new companies are, right? And so that if you have a friend who's trying to buy a house in Seattle, forget it, because you know you have all of the Amazon people and the Microsoft people. And, I mean, that's what drives the growth, and that's what's driving the growth here. And so that um, the, one, the one thing I would encourage, if there's any um, sort of people involved with, with policy, is that um, you know, the way to get your city to grow, and certainly the way to get, we, we have drive capital and 
Uh, and one of the things that Mark always says when he's in class, what always surprises me, is that you know what he wants is to have more VC money come in so that he can do deals together. You would think that he wouldn't want to have competitors come into your market, but no, no, no. In venture world, you want to have a, sort of a, a, a network of people and having people come in and do deals together and work for each other. And and we've made a huge progress here in Columbus. And I just, if you guys, um, anyone here is uh, involved with this, if you know, the more the more money can be attracted to firms that are you know, based here and investing in here, uh, I think that's the key to economic growth in, um, in this country, in this, in this part of the world. So anyway, I, again, I didn't prepare anything, so uh, let me turn it back to Mark. And, um, but uh, we're going to turn to the VC and innovation uh, panel. Uh, my name is Mike Nemeth. I'm a uh, great case study, frankly, for... Uh, all the presentations this morning about Jobs Ohio and attracting people to come here to Columbus. I, I moved here 10 years ago from New York uh, to take a job inside of a nanotech company that was encouraged to relocate here to Ohio. And uh, was one of their first business employees. So if you can imagine 10 PhDs sitting around in an office waiting for someone to do the business stuff, uh, that's what I was asked to do. So it was a lot of fun, and it was certainly a great example of a company that was strapped for resources and, and leveraged some great uh, opportunities of some non-dilutive state funding to, to help grow. Uh, I worked there for a few years. Uh, we saw a, a partial exit uh, to an international chemical company. Uh, and I've subsequently uh, gone on and, and worked uh, and own a company uh, in the e-commerce tech space. Uh, so I'm happy to kind of share on the other side of innovation uh, and venture. And I, I'm Pleased to be up here with Ernie, uh, who, who Vlad uh, gave me some good background on. Ernie and I don't know each other, so this will be a fun uh, conversation that we'll have. Uh, and and I, I did my, my very basic LinkedIn stalking of Ernie a few minutes ago. So I do have some good questions for him, but I think we'll be excited to see where the conversation goes. Ernie. Hey, well, you know, first, uh, thanks for, for inviting me to participate. Very much uh, look forward to, to the panel here. Um, and. You know, Mike, great to meet you. and Looking forward to, to meeting you, sir. Um, you know, I'm Ernie Knight. Uh, I, you know, live here in Columbus as well. I've been here for about 20 years. Um, I've been doing VC investing for, you know, that entire time. Prior to that was uh, in Silicon Valley doing primarily product marketing for startups. Uh, earlier in my career, I was in the steel industry, which is a longer story I won't bore you with. Um, you know, today I am the managing director of Valley Growth Ventures. Uh, we're a six million dollar micro VC fund, uh, based actually. Though I live here in Columbus, we're based in Northeast Ohio, specifically Youngstown. The Valley is short, is short for Mahoning Valley. Though we have an emphasis on uh, investing in Northeast Ohio, we do invest across the state. Uh, Half of our capital comes through a really uh, limited partner, uh, investor-friendly program for the state of Ohio, um, though we have investors from across the country, I like to say from sea to shining sea, all the way from Silicon Valley to <coughs> New York and Boston and 11 states in between. Um, we have uh, uh, some unique partnerships with uh, Bon Secor Mercy Health, the Young Business Incubator, Bright Energy Incubator, Youngstown State University, and a group called Valley Partners, which provides some in-kind support. With that, we look at industries and sectors they have expertise in. It includes healthcare, software and IT, <coughs> energy, advanced materials and additive manufacturing. We focus on doing deals at the seed stage, which really we define as the cusp of market entry. So anyway, that's a kind of a little high level on me and a high level on Value Growth Ventures. And like I said, look forward to, you know, to, to offering some hopefully um, useful perspectives here at this panel. The Voltage Valley uh, kind of is, is focused in the Mahoning Valley, primarily kind of the Lordstown, Warren, Youngstown area. Um, uh, Lordstown Motors is a big part of that, and there's a whole ecosystem of electrification and, you know, voltage ecosystem that's developed there. 
We certainly work closely with those groups as that is our, you know, our emphasis region. And it's, it's a very exciting time and an opportunity really for um, significant innovation and, and a real game changer for, for the region. But yes, absolutely. And let's see, what time is it? Ah, good morning still. So my name is Kevin Lloyd. I'm a serial entrepreneur here in the Columbus market, originally from New York City. Um, what I wanted to share specifically is I'm also the co-founder of a company called Color Coded Labs. Color Coded Labs is a boot camp um, designed to focus on uh, minority communities to help them learn how to code and obviously become engaged uh, in the opportunities that exist in high-demand, high-tech positions uh, with the goal of increasing their economic stability um, and generate wealth. The thing that's unique about this is that this company is also co-founded by Mark Kwame. So Mark came up not too long ago in conversation. And um, one of the things that was mentioned was that he's very interested in the collaboration and, and investments. And with him coming to Ohio, which he was basically recruited to come here as well and have an impact, he has not only talked about it, but he's actually done that. And I happen to be the recipient of one of those uh, partnerships as he was able to establish a collaboration between himself, Rev1, and Jumpstart. Uh, Jumpstart is up in Northeast Ohio. I think you probably will hear more about that when you go up to Cleveland. Um, obviously, Rev1 is here in Central Ohio. Um, and in collaboration with Mark as well, they decided to invest in Color Coded Labs and um, gave us our pre-seed in order to really get it off the ground. So Color Coded Labs, we are in the process of our first cohort with six members working on our second cohort already with the goal of obviously filling these positions. Since we launched about three months ago, we've had probably 20 plus companies. So a lot of those that were mentioned on the screen during the last presentation from One Columbus, most of those companies have come to the table to hire our candidates. So there's a huge demand, there's a huge partnership, a huge collaboration. So happy to be here today to share a little bit of that story because it's the reality of what's happening here in Central Ohio. So we can cover steel and, and some other background fun. Uh, and I'm curious as well for you, the, the background that led you into Color Code Labs and, and, and what brought you here. If we can dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. Said again, you know, so born and raised in the city. So I was born and raised in Spanish Harlem. I uh, went to Tuskegee University, received a degree in accounting, spent 25 years as a retail executive working for most of the major retailers and then stepped into the entrepreneurial world in uh, full speed in 2018. Uh, my background that led to Color Coded Labs is uh, I took the entrepreneurial journey. I actually started my first startup in uh, 2005. Um, so I own uh, a couple of different companies. So one of them is Deloitte of Columbus, and we own a property called ColumbusBlack.com. So we're the online primary resource connecting the black community to commerce and culture here in central Ohio. But we've been used for tourism. We've been used as a recruiting and retention tool by most of the major corporations here in the market as well. That led to a lot of my efforts into technology and innovation. And um, with some of my partners, as we were taking a look at the ecosystem, we know that there's disparities that exist in technology specifically. And one of our goals was to help close that gap. Um, as we continue to host events here in the market, we realized that there was a demand from a recruiting perspective by a lot of the companies, especially because Columbus is one of the fastest or has been identified multiple times in the last few years as the number one startup uh, city, right? And the reason why is because of companies like Cover My Meds. You just heard about Root Insurance. They just went public. Um, and there's a number of other companies coming right behind them. So from a startup perspective, the market is growing extremely fast. There's a huge demand and there's a huge gap. So my partners and I, in, in collaboration with Mark, sitting down having some conversations, recognized that we could help to, to fill that void just due to the access to the minority community, the fact that there's a demand there, and we could close that gap. So that's how it led into Color Coded Labs. Ernie, from a talent perspective, right, where, where you're at and where your companies are at, I, I saw most of the companies in your portfolio are mostly health, medical sciences, what's, what's sort of the, the strategy there on either recruiting talent out of Columbus or developing or building talent uh, right in the hometowns of, of where your companies are at? Sure, great question. Um, you know, certainly from a healthcare perspective, uh, you know, the state broadly 
uh, greatly benefits from some of the, the best healthcare resources in, on the planet. Um, Northeast Ohio, you've got the Cleveland Clinic. Um, you've got uh, one of our investors, Mercy Health, Health, Health uh, Systems, Akron Children's Hospital, also an investor of ours. Um, you know, right here, you have uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital, you know, um, Ohio State Hospital System, R Riverside Ohio Health, um, and in Cincinnati, you got a number of great hospital systems too. So, really, those feed. I mean, you know, a number of our companies come from innovations. You know, one of our portfolio companies literally is an innovation right of out of Ohio State based on atrial fibrillation. Um, so uh, there's a great ecosystem there, generates a lot of talent and innovation. On the software side, you know, it was mentioned by the gentleman earlier, there's a number of universities here in, in the Columbus area, but also in Northeast Ohio, where you have Case Western Reserve, Cleveland State. Um, you know, in our, in our backyard, Youngstown State University has a very strong engineering program. So you just have a lot of talent that has been bubbling up and, you know, we've talked about the attraction piece. So mining talent has, you know, I've been here for now 20 years, as I mentioned. It's greatly improved over time. A lot of the factors that have been discussed kind of drive it. But um, absolutely, the, the talent is there and the ecosystems just continue, continue to grow. So I know we're kind of narrowing in on the on the talent side, but it does ultimately all, all the innovation and all the growth doesn't happen unless there's people there to get the work done. Uh, despite rise in automation and AI, I think there's still this undercurrent of we need to find smart people. We need to find people to fill you know, roles inside of our companies. The the candidates that you have coming through the lab, where are they coming from? What's inspiring them to join? And then uh, very curious for. From, from my own perspective, how do you keep them engaged versus everyone wanting to become an entrepreneur now that that's the, the sexy title to have, right? Like I, I, I see this problem happening a lot as people often are trying to start companies just because they, they feel like that's the, the thing they should do versus getting the experience inside of other companies. So what, what, are, you, what are you teaching the people inside of your, in your cohort about putting the work, how to understand like how the landscape is before you go off and do your, your first thing on your own? So I'll start with the first part of your question, which is where are we sourcing the candidates from? Um, the cool part is when you think about what happened last year with COVID, um, this whole virtual world gives us a little bit more flexibility, right? So when we initially started the concept, it was going to be face-to-face and in-person. Obviously, we had to slow things down because of everything that happened, and then we decided to go hybrid, where it's virtual slash in-person, which gave us a little bit more flexibility. So out of our six candidates, actually one of those candidates is in Florida and is able to participate. But when we do in-person events like we have an event this evening, she's actually here in town for that event. But otherwise, we still have the ability to teach and train. Um, the rest of the candidates really just came through our network, right? So through promotions and marketing and letting people know about what we were going to do, there are a lot of people interested in different opportunities. They want the opportunity to work for what we find that's interesting is it's not just learning tech. It's the opportunity to work for the companies that are willing to hire them from our program. So that's actually very um, compelling to them to have the opportunity to work for a Root Insurance or a Nationwide or a J.P. Morgan Chase who's saying we want to hire these particular candidates. So that's a, a value proposition for them. In regards to um, their focus around, you know, going through the program and then getting a job and getting the experience before becoming a, an entrepreneur, it really comes down to, I think, our reinforcement. So what we decided to do was coin this as an HBCU-style boot camp. So in essence, we're providing a lot of support and engagement. So every week, there's interaction and engagement with these candidates versus the normal online <clears throat> excuse me, processes that are there. So for instance, we use Udacity as the curriculum platform. However, we reinforce it with a lot of engagement. So, for instance, last night we had a social activity where we went out to Pins and Condados and had a great time with them. That's really important, and then we provide them with soft skills training. So we have experts and mentors that are supporting them with soft skills training so when they do get their jobs, they can be successful. And I think that's helping us to guide them down that path toward the corporate opportunities and the fact that these jobs are waiting versus, hey, just jump out and become an entrepreneur. Now, if we if they decide to do that, we'll still be able to support them, but we're trying to get them on track for these opportunities. 
Can you talk about the recruiting path that you have on getting companies to start recruiting your candidates? Because that, that's the two-sided sort of marketplace there that you have to deal with. Yeah, so this is another part, by the way, where uh, Mark was able to help us out, right? So obviously being a person that he is in the market, we were able to do a survey to see where the demand was before we started the program, so a little research. And we've been able to engage those companies on the front end to validate their interest. And now we continue to engage them. So we brought them up to speed. Um, tonight, what's going to happen is they'll have an opportunity to meet, you know, it's a select group of those companies that will have a chance to meet the candidates. So that's how we're already bridging that gap. And one of the things that I learned throughout my entire career in, in retail is, you know, you can go to um, a career fair at a college or university, right? But that's after the fact, right? The goal is to have an interaction with the deans of those schools, the professors, so they can handpick and cherry pick the candidates that are fit for your company. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're literally handpicking and identifying these candidates, helping to identify a match and fulfilling those positions. The goal is to continue to do that, but to be able to scale that as well. I'll actually hop right in on the, on the same topic. You were talking about kind of how do we build the ecosystem, how do we get uh, more entrepreneurs, cultivate the next generation. Uh, we've taken a little bit of a, actually a similar tact. I, I really resonated what you were saying. Uh, we have internship programs that we run. We, we work with about 40 universities around the country, but a real focus on the Midwest. And we run internship programs with a select number of those universities where they kind of get experience working with us in getting both, both exposure to the investment side. Actually, we think actually entrepreneurs should get exposure not just to the operating side, but they're going to be good entrepreneurs. They actually need to make sure they know what a cap table is and make sure they don't get taken advantage of. By not all investors are so, – most of us hopefully are, are good investors, but there's some out there that uh, might, might take advantage of an entrepreneur. So you want to really give them that exposure in addition to uh, the operating experience. And some of those folks end up joining our team, but the vast majority of them go back off. Some of them stay in academia ultimately uh, and actually hopefully will spin technologies out of their labs. And many of the others will uh, go on and become entrepreneurs and hopefully help to build the local ecosystems that they're in. And if they have the tools that they need from, from hopefully, you know, working with a, an organization, they can, they'll be able to actually stay in their home ecosystem and, and do more of that rather than sort of go, having to go off to a big city where there's already a ton of entrepreneurs to kind of get that mentorship. So if you give it to them while they're in school, hopefully they, uh, they stay local. Sure, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in on the topic, but uh, um, I run a company called Orange Grove Bio, and, and essentially what our business is is uh, a biotech holding company. We work with universities across the country to help those universities spin those technologies, mostly in the therapeutic space, out of the university and build them into new companies. We then actually leverage our team to actually run those companies. So rather than trying to find the one-off entrepreneur to build each one of these businesses, which is the traditional venture model, you bring the money and then hope that there's a good entrepreneur, we actually try to bring the entrepreneurial talent alongside of the capital and, uh, and get things going. And then obviously over time, as those companies grow, they'll build more and more of their own infrastructure. But in those earliest days, we kind of try to lend them, let's say, a helping hand and provide a lot of the, uh, the infrastructure they need. And so for us, the more we can get those ecosystems up and running in different parts of the country, these venture ecosystems, uh, the better it is for everybody, right? The more we can find local talent to then fill in in those companies and, and, uh, and maybe the less, uh, less we have to kind of export in from elsewhere. So perhaps this question's a bit biased from my own background in, in aerospace and some other larger uh, ecosystems where there's a, a heavy presence of, of the government, some sort of state customer, not just state involvement, but, you know, from from the perspective of helping your companies mature and grow uh, and finding customers outside of just typical B2B, but B2G, uh, are, are you seeing that here in Ohio as, as an advantage, a disadvantage? Kind of talk about the other the other customers that you guys have, um, you know, when dealing with government customers, you know, supporting your, your projects? Yes, yeah, so, so government's a very, very big part of, of our business, right? It comes at really two levels. You have the, the federal government level where, where guess what, most uh, 
um, biotech research in this co in this country ultimately comes back to the NIH and other government agencies. And I will say that Ohio stacks up really well, and actually so does a lot of the rest of the Midwest. There's a lot of big research institutions. They are getting billions and billions of dollars from the federal government every year, and it's kind of a little, uh, maybe a very well-known secret that, uh, that that's where a lot of this innovation is, is coming from. Uh, additionally, I'll say, I mean, we've made a big bet on Ohio. We've actually moved our headquarters from New York to Cincinnati because uh, the Ohio state government is just so forward-thinking, uh, is putting resources to bear in the biotech sector. Um, and we look at them as, as a partner. Uh, we also look at government agencies ultimately as, as customers, right? We, we, sell, we ultimately can sell products if we develop certain drugs to the Army, to other uh, government agencies. Um, so there's kind of multiple different ways, levels in which we're interacting with government. And so making sure we get that support at both the federal and the state level uh, is so critical. Uh, just looking at kind of the macro landscape, I'll also just throw in there, as we've kind of moved back to a world of kind of onshoring and especially with kind of strategic industries, uh, being a, uh, a U.S.-focused and based uh, research-focused organization um, really puts it at the foref forefront of where a lot of uh, both state and federal government uh, energies are going, right? There's really a real push to say, you know, we, we went through this whole COVID period and uh, people recognize that actually being able to both um, innovate new vaccines close to home and then manufacture them close to home is actually a very important strategic advantage and, and almost necessary. And so... Um, I'd say a lot of organizations like ours are sort of net beneficiaries of, of that kind of shift in policy. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so I, I will say that uh, um, a commercial customer is probably preferable to a government customer. Um, you know, uh, certainly we've had a strong partnership um, with the state government in particular uh, with our fund, uh, but... Uh, government customers can be, um, you know, they can change with administration, they can change with policy. So um, there's a little, you know, an extra layer of risk that's involved when, when thinking about government as a venture customer. Y you like to think, particularly in the B2B space, that, um, you know, uh, customers will be uh, reasonable actors. Right. I mean, they're driven by ROI, they're driven by profit, they're driven by whatever it is. And if you provide them a, a, a must have valuable product or service, they're going to want to pay for it. In the case of, of governments, that is driven often by political factors and other things that are a little add to the risk. That said, particularly at the federal level, if you're able to attract um, a government contract, it can be very lucrative, that can be hard to obtain. One great example, um, one of our portfolio companies that's it's based here in Columbus, um, founded by a professor in the electrical engineering department called Data Anchor. Um, they have a cybersecurity product that is a very strong fit for what's called CMMC, the cybersecurity maturity model compliance that all Department of Defense vendors are going to need to comply with. So, um, you know, we see a real opportunity there and are really leveraging that into the space. So, you know, when, when you can find an opportunity, it's great because once you can get there, it can be really sticky. But there are, you know, added challenges when you're thinking about the government, you know, market and, and the risk it creates. Mark, are we good for maybe one more question for each panelist? Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to put you guys on the spot because I think uh, oftentimes, you know, we try to we try to be completely professional and 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 keep everything, you know. Tell us tell us something that that, that you're that you're happy about that you that you want to brag about uh, inside your organization, right? Like just a, a win, right? Like this year and the 18 months have been have been tough. We always talk about the problems that we're facing. So let let let's end on a on a positive note. Tell everybody just a, a good win that you're proud of. Hey, this is what we this is what we got done. And then to make it really concise and simple for everybody, you know, let everyone know here, here's how I can help you. And, and here's here's perhaps, uh, you know, how you guys could maybe help us. That is a loaded one for sure, because um, clearly we've been through a lot in 2020, 2021 20, uh, has come through roaring. Um, and I'll try to keep it as sweet and short as possible. But as a, a serial entrepreneur, I have a few of these. Right. That's going on. But I'll start with Color Coded Labs. I think what I'm most excited about is all the learnings that we've had in such a short amount of time. The amount of demand uh, and interest in what we're doing 
is, I mean, at, at points, it seems overwhelming. It's not as exciting. So um, that will probably be one of the, the key victories. So I think we recognize from a local market, or not a local market, but from a product market fit is 150%, right? The demand is there. And then while there's still some challenges of identifying enough candidates to meet the demand, we've also identified some resources that can help us identify that pipeline and secure that talent as well. So those relationships are coming through, so I'm really excited about that. Outside of that, what I didn't get to share um, is I also own another company. It's called Mile, which stands for Make Your Life Entertaining. It's an entertainment software and lifestyle data analytics company, and we have launched a platform to help people find things to do, places to go and food to eat, right in the palm of their hand, right? So leveraging machine learning, artificial intelligence, and some of the most recent technology, um, and we are about to launch that and scale it nationally. So we're right in that, in that point. We just got uh, funded for our pre-seed round, so we're just at that point of really getting ready to scale and get it out there. So that's like super, super exciting for us right now. Um, so I'll invite everybody to go to mile.com. That's M-Y-L-E.com. That's my shameless plug. In regards to, got to do it, right? I'm an entrepreneur. So um, in regards to what I need and how I can help you all is uh, is really that support, right? Whether it's with Color Coder Labs, whether it's downloading Miles, spreading the word, doing our campaign, those are the simple, easy ways you can help me. The way I can help you all is I know a lot of you may be interested in this particular market. Um, I'm an ambassador for the city of Columbus, very well connected here, have a lot of relationships. And when it comes to deal flow or opportunities or networks, I can be a resource to help you. Um, in any way that you need. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy connecting. And if there's a need here, I'll be willing to help. Thank you. So in terms of um, the the proud win, I'm going to start generally and then focus in more specifically, um, which doesn't mean I'm going to talk long, though. That does set the prelude that I would, doesn't it? Um, when the pandemic started, um, it was a it was a scramble, and we you know we are very active investors generally, and we got more active. I mean, we got very operational. And if you would have told me, you know, in June of 2020 that you know our entire portfolio would survive, uh, I would have not believed you. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to say our portfolio has survived, you know, or all of them, you know, potential unicorns, uh, no, but they're all alive, they're all well positioned and, you know, ready to, to take the next step. You know, we, we were able to make the adjustments we needed to make. And then specifically, you know, though I've been doing venture capital investing as an institutional VC for, for some time, like Ventures is a first time fund. And, you know, the biggest win for a first-time fund is your first exit. And we had our first exit in March. Uh, investors made money. You know, did they all go buy yachts based on the returns? No. But they all they all had a positive return. I, I can't say how much because it's confidential, but very proud to get that, that first one in the door, particularly coming out of a, a pandemic. In terms of, you know, how... Uh, we could be helped. I mean, we're a, uh, you know, we're a, a venture fund, right? So we're always looking for deal flow. Though we are Ohio focused, we do have the ability to invest outside of Ohio. Um, it's not our sweet spot, but we do. But deal flow is always welcome at the seed stage. And we've talked a lot about talent. If, if you know entrepreneurs or people that want to be involved in startup businesses and have skills, you know, we'd love to find a way to, to introduce them to our portfolio companies and the companies that we work with in the Mahoning Valley. Um, how how can can I be helpful to this group? Um, you know, that's a maybe a tougher question, but I'll, I'll throw something out there. Uh, in 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 my career, I've done venture investing and worked with companies as a entrepreneur, not just in Ohio, but also on both coasts. So I'm probably one of the few people that can really speak directly to the differences between investing on the West Coast, East Coast, or the Midwest. And it is different, right? It's really a different model that you typically think about. You can generate, you know, you can generate returns that are, are venturable 
and risk-adjusted return for the asset class in both cases, but the approach and the model are different. And I'm always happy to, to speak and give thoughts on what those differences are and the pros and cons to, to different regions um, in, the, in the venture asset class. So. Great. So I'll try to keep my, my, my comments uh, relatively brief. Sounds like a lot of folks have accomplished a lot in, in COVID. It's impressive to, uh, to, to see. Uh, we, we're a little bit of a different business, right? We actually got ourselves launched uh, right at the eve of COVID. So we immediately had to figure out how to build and grow a business during COVID. And, and so one of the businesses that I was very excited about, it started out actually as a, a COVID response, right? It's a company called Acelixa Bio, um, came out of technology out of uh, University of Michigan. And uh, the idea was actually to develop a therapy that would be able to help with uh, very sick COVID patients. It's actually a platform that has a lot of other disease areas that it can be focused on, um, including acute respiratory distress, which is where we've sort of moved it into as sort of the COVID crisis has kind of ebbed and flowed. It still potentially has some use there. Um, but I like to think about the fact that we were able to very quickly um, ramp something up to try to be helpful during that pandemic period. Uh, and that's a company that actually was able to pivot a few times and continue to be strong and actually come out even stronger on the other side of COVID um, uh, today and, and entering clinical trials pretty soon. Uh, and in terms of, terms of uh, kind of other, the other big accomplishment I would say is we went from an institution that was only working with a handful of universities at the start of the pandemic uh, to one that's working with over 40 institutions today. And we did that all via Zoom. So um, as much as I, I prefer and appreciate the fact that we're all able to be here in person and a lot of business is better done when you can go face to face, you can accomplish a lot on, on Zoom calls, and I think the uh, pandemic really taught everybody uh, uh, the ability to do that. Um, in terms of how you can help us, well, we're new to the uh, Ohio ecosystem. We're new to Cincinnati, where we're building our headquarters. We have a lot of uh, hiring needs there now that we're, we're shifting our, our focus. Uh, we're bringing some of our talent from the coasts, but, but obviously want to find a lot more talent locally. So I uh, have a long roster of people I, I'm looking for. So um, if folks uh, know of good lawyers, accountants, um, uh, biotech professionals. We're, we're looking for all of them right now as we, as we scale our team uh, locally. Um, and how I can be helpful to all of you is um, what we've noticed actually from, from really talk conversations with investment groups all around the country, a lot more people are interested in biotech. They don't know, it's a kind of a, a boogeyman. It's, a, it's a, a scary industry if you don't really, aren't really deep in it. And so a lot of people have shied away. I think people are starting to inch into it a bit more because returns there have just been so fantastic over the past uh, seven, eight years. Uh, we'd love to talk to any of you about biotech investing broadly, not, not even for our business. I mean, great if you want to participate in one of our portfolio companies, but if I can be helpful to get you comfortable to start inching into that industry, it's one that's going to continue growing for many years to come and would love to just see more investors in that, in that industry in general. Thanks. So I made Vlad a bet that I could get one question out of this very interactive audience that we've had so far this morning. So now I'm putting you guys on the spot. Put down your phones. Take a second. I'm going to look for one volunteer to ask this fine panel an insightful question that's just burning a hole in your mind. Any takers? All right. I won't tell you how much I just got from Vlad. And you're not a plant, right? You're not. I didn't plant you. We don't know each other. All right. Let me let me get out there and get you the mic. Uh, Luke Tempe, just quick question um, for the panelists. I know you guys talked about just the pandemic a little bit. Like, what what was the toughest situation dealing with the disruption? Um, just in that space, just kind of curious. Thank you. All right. So on on my end, I think um, wow. So. Each of the endeavors, I would say three out of the four endeavors that I'm tied to um, came to a halt, right? So fortunately, the one that didn't, it, it took off, fortunately, but um, tied to a co-working space. So guess what? Nobody was coming out to work in an office during COVID. So we literally put the brakes on and couldn't open up for over a year. And this was a, a newly founded co-working space with color-coded labs Everything was put on hold as we were trying to shift from in person to figuring out how to do it virtually. Um, and we finally got that off the ground, but that was put on hold as well. Um, and then with Mile, Mile is all about entertainment. 
well, everything completely stopped entertainment wise and then it went online. So we quickly shifted. But in-person events stopped in most of the country. Um, but we were able to see those trends. So the yeah, exactly. So that was the biggest adjustment was really just being patient. Um, with Mile, we decided to just innovate and do everything we wanted to do. So by the time COVID was done, we would be relevant for what was needed. Um, with Color Coder Labs, we obviously shifted to a hybrid. And then with the co-working space, we had to wait. So it was, but you think about going through the mental shift of how do I uh, pivot or adjust and tweak the model to still be successful and then figure it out. And it was just really unique. The thing about it is, is that it's still so much ambiguity and what we do today, and you just have to continue to kind of ebb and flow as you need to. So it was a lot of learnings that came from it. And you're still here. Well, I guess the, the unfortunate truth is this is an easy question for me to answer. Um, one of our portfolio companies, uh, MetaSync, provides business intelligence and predictive analytics software to nursing homes. So if you recall, right at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, you, you couldn't get in a nursing home, right? I mean, they, you know, it was the hotbed of, of infections. And I mean, literally, it, it's hard to, to sell software when you can't go on site. And, you know, they're trying to, to deal with, you know, a, a large amount of, of well, I mean, death. They, you know, the pipeline halted, um, you know, in order to keep them afloat, they did what, you know, good entrepreneurs did and do, and, and they agreed to cut down their salary significantly. We extended payables. We cut, you know, everything we possibly could to extend runway. And, and they didn't get a new customer for the first, you know, seven months. Um, you know, luckily we were able to do some creative things and, and now they've, generated, you know, four new customers and recently the largest customer in the history of the company. So, um, you know, they're, they're stabilized and we're now with each new customer slowly increasing salaries to, to bring them over time back up to where they were. Um, we gave option grants, uh, to the engineering team to, to keep them right, you know, aligned and, and on board and we've not lost anybody, which is a real testament to the, the fortitude and the belief that the entire team across the board has. But, um, I mean, it's, it's tough, not only right when you have a pandemic, but you, you can't even get into a customer and they lived every day worrying about a phone call from current customers that they were going to stop paying. Right. I mean, that they weren't going to, they're going to lose customers through no fault of their own. They just couldn't afford it anymore. But luckily, they haven't lost any customers. They've had some delayed payments here and there, but they, they, would, they were able to keep their, their customer base. But that was the toughest story for us. We, we had a software company selling to nursing homes and not a place you wanted to be for the first several months of COVID or, or even now. I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend anybody invest in that space. Uh, so, so, so our, 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 our you, would, you would think the biotech industry would be kind of booming during, during COVID and certain sub-segments of, of, the, of the market certainly did. Uh, what I'll tell you is getting drugs approved is a very intensive regulatory process. And when everyone is scrambling and trying to solve a global crisis, that regulatory process starts to break down. The FDA stops being responsive to everybody who is not uh, solving a COVID drug. Cancer is not really important when you're fighting a crisis. And so um, most things kind of ground to a halt for a good number of months during uh, 2020. And you just couldn't get responses from government agencies. You couldn't get things uh, through. Clinical trials just stopped, right? You couldn't recruit patients because you couldn't make sure that those patients would be safe going into the hospital and getting treatment. And so um, uh, I'd actually say probably the bigger tragedy of it, not put aside our own portfolio and our own business, is there were a lot of patients out there who were not able to enroll in clinical trials for diseases like cancer, heart disease, et cetera, or, or even get their treatments because of COVID. And so we, we talk about the COVID number of COVID deaths, and actually that's far dwarfed by the number of people who died not being able to get other treatments for other diseases because we were so busy fighting this crisis. So it really had a lot of negative knock-on effects for um, not just for our business, but I think just for humanity. And, and obviously I know we're all coming out the other side. I want to end on a bright note that thankfully things are, are normalizing and the industry is uh, recovering and a lot more people are going out for treatments or seeing hospital um, 
um, people going in for kind of more elective surgeries really picking up, which is a sign that people are getting getting helped rather than you know suffering uh, in silence. So, Mike, I like to you, you the early, one of the earlier questions was a, was a, one of your best wins, and we have a a win I want to highlight from a, a fund manager slash entrepreneur. Uh, thank you, Mark. Um, Barry Adams, Prairie Crest Capital Managing Partner. Um, you know, first of all, I've been with Mark since the beginning of 360, and it has grown tremendously, and the family has grown, and I want to thank you all for participating yeah. here in Columbus. This is my second time to Columbus, thanks to Vlad. Um, Prairie Crest Capital is more in tune with Orange Grove Bio, and the fact that we really like to commercialize um, university technologies and deep science and, and bring them to market. Um, but it's not always that easy. And it's not always that easy because scientists don't necessarily make great business people, as, as you can attest to. Um, we found a company uh, through our process, and our process is identification first, and then uh, marketability, and then we bring them into a collaborative um, event where multiple investors can see Pope Beal. Uh, we did this uh, conference with uh, Pioneer as our lead sponsor. From there, we identified natural fiber welding. Natural fiber welding at that time was still is led by a scientist, but they had no customers. Great technology, no customers. And their three promises to the market was vegan leather, vegan plastic, and the third was a cotton material that was 100% cotton but had the qualities of polyester. It was out of Bradley University. Uh, we met them in 2017, brought them into our conference, and we literally had to coach them into how to bring this company into the marketplace with real customers, real clients, and everything else. The challenge was, because it was vegan leather and vegan plastic, we had one company, JBS as an example, looking at this company as a defensive investment because they had the biggest cattle producing uh, company in the world. And this company, uh, instead of leather, was vegan leather. So that was a defensive kind of investment that we looked at initially for this company. Um, but what we found is that it was not just the angel investors that came to the fore, but it was uh, three strategic partners in each different category. And finding those strategic partners under NDAs was really uh, the challenge. So natural fiber welding for the vegan leather, our first strategic partner to invest in the company was Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren came in. And we started really small, guys. Ralph Lauren came in for leather patches on their jeans, all right? And then in 2019 at the 360 event, um, I introduced natural fiber welding to the, to the uh, 360 family. And at that time, Ralph Lauren brought in three um, Italian purse makers to New York City, and, and we made purses by hand with vegan leather, and that led to a $5 million investment from Ralph Lauren. So once Ralph Lauren came in, smart shirts came in uh, for the 100% for the, uh, cotton, uh, and smart shirts is from Southeast Asia, but they make branded shirts, and those branded shirts you would know as Calvin Klein, Kenneth Cole, um, and, and, and others. So we had the cotton material, uh, $4 million investment from Smart Shirts. We got $5 million from Ralph Lauren. And the third one in the initial, in the original round was Allbirds. Allbirds came in for uh, their all-natural vegan shoes. So we had three categories to start off. At that time, uh, we started getting uh, a lot of demand. And what happened is we had to change our business focus because in the beginning, we would go with small brands who could make quicker decisions rather than these corporate brands. But once the corporate brands came in, we couldn't afford to do that and maintain our business model. And so we uh, closed the first round at uh, $71 million uh, last August. 
And we went back to the marketplace in February with a round priced at $200 million. So between August and February, we had a triple. Uh, at the $200 million round, we got investors such as BMW uh, for cars. Uh, BMW's main interest was when you put leather in cars, you waste approximately 35% of the leather due to the cutting. With vegan leather, you don't waste anything because you make it to specifications. So um, there was a big, huge savings in the car industry. We thought we had a deal with Porsche first, um, but BMW uh, came in first. Um, so at that $200 million round was February. In July, the banks, which are starting to come into um, the VC space earlier, um, came in and, and, and valued natural fiber welding between 450 and $500 million. Now, the important part is a couple things. One, commercialization of uh, technology from college universities. Um, two, bringing those college technical advances to a customer base. Three, protecting the IP so that you have it. And then scalability. So the reason we invested in natural fiber welding was they solved a problem that was big enough. They had the scalability, which is the most important aspect. And we felt we could introduce them to the customers, which they couldn't necessarily do on their own when they started. Um, the things that we look at are, as a firm are size of problem, uh, people, because in, in, in our business, there's, there's a trust factor that has to go both ways, it, you know, and, and we don't overlook that. Um, and that part takes time to, to build. And the third part we look at is can we have a collaborative investment base of, fr of friendly capital? Because there are going to be hiccups. The hiccups with this company, Natural Fiber Welding, is that they were so focused on sustainability and the research and being right that they wasted, I don't know, six months trying to prove to the Gates Foundation that this was the best thing in sliced bread. And they wasted, you know, a whole white paper putting together for breakthrough energy and all that stuff. And we said, guys, you know, let's focus on the customer and everything else will come back to us, right? So we had to make that little tweak in how they approached um, and approach their business. But I just wanted to um, share with you one of the 360 wins in the 360 family of uh, natural fiber welding. And um, if there's any questions, um, I'll be happy to answer. Yes, sir. The answer is absolutely. Um, just the way they could do cotton and make, think about their cotton products, think about 100% cotton with the um, qualities of Under Armour. They can do the same thing with hemp, um, and we've had this discussion. Um, there's a little bit of, um, of, of difference in the touch and feel, um, but right now we're trying to find that first customer for the hemp piece without losing our um, acceleration in the marketplace. Isn't that an awesome story? Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.